0: Stephen Heiner, part three.
1: I'd really like to talk to you, if possible, about the young earth creationism. What's your position and uh, what do you think generally of this topic?
0: Young earth creationism is interesting. It interprets creation as happening through literal days, the 24-hour cycle, and that the earth can be anywhere between 6,000 and, and 10,000 years as far as my, my research and my, my reading on it has been. And it's not a unattractive idea, but it's not anything the church either supports or rejects explicitly.
1: Oh, okay. So do you think it's possible to defend any form of evolution, whether it's theistic evolution or a secular version of it?
0: No, the church doesn't permit of a defense of evolution. Again... In the way that the, the world teaches it, the, the so-called scientific community, in which uh, we get a succession of creatures creating themselves through mutations, and, and we end up with an ape creating us. So no, it's not possible to hold that as a Catholic.
1: I see. So what are the options? Like, what's the sort of spectrum or the range of feasible options?
0: Well, as long as you accept that the world and we specifically were created ex nihilo and men specifically were created from the slime of the earth, then the way, the way that that goes about, the timeline that that goes about is open to interpretation. So the, the classic example is, you know, what is a day to God? So a day for God, it could have been in a 24-hour cycle, but, but maybe it wasn't. But no one was there. <laughs> And we don't have any scientific evidence one way or the other on this matter. Therefore, we can't use science to make our argument.
1: Hmm. What about the doctrine that God created a perfect paradise, a perfect world without illness, death, disease, deformity, genetic mutations, uh, and suffering and all these sorts of things? Is that fully supported as I believe it is?
0: Yes, of course, we have paradise. That's what our Lord gave to our first parents and gave them an opportunity to enjoy that world and merit heaven. After that, we chose a different path, which gave us a much more wonderful story. But yes, that was the original plan.
1: (laughs) So the story arc is a little bit more interesting because of the fall. Is this um, connected with that happy fault, uh, the Easter?
0: Yes, in the Exultat. The, the happy fault and, and and again, it's one of these things, if you think about it, when you're praying in meditation, especially during the Easter season, you think, in a certain sense, only God is able to bring something even more wonderful out of something so tragic as the fall. That we were told, you, you can do anything you want except this one thing. This is the one thing you can't do. And as humans, inevitably, what did we do? We, we did the one thing that we, we weren't supposed to do, ignoring God. And yet, despite us doing the one thing that we were told not to do, God brings about something even more wonderful than what the original plan was.
1: I personally really like the idea of having a certain proximity to the fall, because it makes it easier for me to repent. It makes it easier for me to have clarity of vision on my own sinfulness, as opposed to having millions or billions of years between myself and that event that historical event of the fall do you not sympathize with that psychologically how i I want to be closer to it
0: I, i i understand that sensibility i myself have not been able to imagine millions and billions of years as i've gotten older and i've learned my faith a bit more and i've read i think particularly reading scripture it's hard to imagine any of those people living millions or billions of years ago it doesn't make any sense to me
1: okay so I don't really see how your position differs from mine in terms of creationism. Can you just sort of uh, talk about why you're hesitant to call yourself a young earth creationist, other than the fact that the 24 hour days seem to be an obstacle? Well,
0: because if I'm talking about Young Earth Creationism, so there's capital Y, capital E, capital C, right? And as you've said before, this puts a a, a title on you. Now, if it's simply an outline of the fact that the Earth was created along the lines of what was told to us in Genesis, which is the Word of God, well, then yes, I have to be a Young Earth Creationist, that that is the bare bones of it. But if it says that it happened in 24-hour cycles, the only reason I can't commit to that is because I don't have scientific evidence for that.
1: Yeah, I share your perspective completely. I, I'm not committed at all to 24-hour creation days. So that's irrelevant to me.
0: But I think to your point, how would I share this perspective with somebody who's not a Catholic, who doesn't hold the faith? I would point to the fossil record, and I would look at the idea that there was a catastrophe along the lines of a flood. And we see the flood not just in the fossil record, but we also see it in stories. We're told flood stories in Buddhism and in other parts of the world. So it isn't something that the Catholics made up or the Jews made up. It, it's something that is scientifically backable. We, we have evidence that there was a massive deluge and the earth was covered in this, and, and we have a paleontological record of it. So I would, I would point to that and I, say, I, I would say, okay, well, as you can see, there was a, a flood and it covered the earth, and we have animals and plants all caught up in this massive disaster. So we have the evidence that this happened. Now, for them, they're okay with conceding the flood event. They're like, okay, this happened for sure. But they need to place it X number of years, millions of years in the past, so that it squares with their quote-unquote, I, I can't even call it science. The current scientific consensus is that the universe, as if anyone was there, is 13.8 billion years old, leading to the Earth being 4.5 billion years old, and so on. And so if you concede that the the thirteen point whatever billion, they'll give you a flood event some however millions or billions of years ago. As long as you accept their timeline, then you can have all the biblical stories you want. But the but the reality is that that doesn't make any sense because they have no scientific evidence for their dating, and and they'll they'll talk about isotopic dating, but that method is flawed. If you if you and it it, it tells us that the Shroud of Turin was the 14th century. Why? Because it has to. They can't possibly concede something as miraculous as the Shroud of Turin. Because if they do, they're ruined. It doesn't matter that they don't have the technology to reproduce the Shroud of Turin now. It doesn't matter that photographic technology did not exist at the time. That They say it's from the 14th century, and yet it's the 21st century, and they can't replicate it. So isotopic radio dating is, is flawed. You can put samples in there that will give you a date in the future which doesn't make any sense. And so if we follow their theory, then there's still no evidence for what they're postulating. They they have no proof that the Earth is X number of years old. So going back to your original question, why don't I call myself a young Earth creationist? I can't prove that there were 24-hour days, but I can look at the fossil record and say there's evidence there's scientific evidence that supports something from the account that I believe in. I believe in the Genesis account. I believe in what it says in scripture. And in scripture, there's talk about a big flood. And we have a fossil record to back that up. And that would be, I guess, a way to start a conversation with someone.
1: I used to be disturbed by the sort of forgery or the fakery of a universe that looks to be millions of years old. And then... Hugh Owen of the Colby Center, uh, one of his videos somewhere, or one of his talks somewhere, he mentioned the six jugs of water that were miraculously transformed into wine. And that wine, of course, has a history. Uh, The grapes took time to grow and then to ferment and so on and so forth. So there was sort of a quote-unquote fake history in those jugs of miraculous wine so that put me at ease right away with this idea that god can set up a universe with the stars already in place and he didn't need to go through any sort of stellar evolution scenario he didn't have to do that just like with the wine can you just comment on that uh, on that perspective
0: yes i mean i I think, too, you have to remember that everything is set up exactly how God planned in, in the time. If we think about when was it that Our Lady conceived, when was it that Our Lord was delivered, where He was delivered, the time period, Roman Empire. And I was reading this last Passion season about why it's called the Place of the Skull. Do you, do you know why, David? No that is where tradition tells us that Adam was buried. That was his skull. And for our Lord to be crucified on top of Adam's skull is of course perfect. But God would know this. God would know this is where the road for carrying the cross ends. This is where Golgotha would be. And I hesitate to call it poetry because it's much, much more than that. But this, this idea of completion, of cycles, of course, th- this is the perfection of the mind of God, that he would have something like this. Whereas humans, we would say something silly like, wow, what a coincidence. But there, Obviously, there's no coincidences with God. So when you talk about the timing, when you talk about development, that's just the way that the perfection of his mind is arranged. For us, we can't see it as anything other than miraculous, I suppose.
1: Uh, A lot of atheists object to the fact that God orchestrates and that he intervenes and that he knows in advance what we're going to do. And they seem to think that that somehow negates the freedom of our will. But like I always say to those guests that say this, I know exactly what you're going to do when I stop speaking. You're going to start speaking. So, (laughs) but I'm not the cause. I'm not the cause of, of your speech, right?
0: Correct. In a certain sense, I would even, I would even say if, if we want to look at it, it from the God's point of view, if we're, if we're standing somewhere where we can see someone is about to get into an accident and we know, okay, if this person doesn't turn, this is going to happen, and I could shout at the top of my lungs to try to stop them, it's not going to change the fact that they're likely to get into an accident just because we're set aside in a perspective in which we can observe something. So in the same sense, God stands outside of time. He is in the eternal present. And so for him, there is no past, present, or future. It's just all a, a continuum. And so for him, he just sees everything as it occurs, but it's not, it's not on, on God. And again, it would completely violate our free will for him to continuously intervene to stop us from doing bad things or to make us do good things. That's, that's not his job.
1: Yeah. You know, when we watch a good movie, we see the beauty of how things fit together. And people really enjoy seeing the connections. And they get a a sense of mystery. And there's a sort of magic how things fit together. And it was meant to be. But when God's involved, they don't like it. Why? Why is that psychologically?
0: Because remember that faith is a gift. So, if you find something to be wonderful, but then you try to set them against the backdrop of something you don't have, which is faith in God, these people will automatically reject it. Even though it goes along with their instinct that this makes sense and I, I really find this, as you say, enchanting, but if it has to do with God, I reject it. That's just a, a sort of, in a, in a sense, a consistent narrative for them. If it has to do with God, I reject it. And even if it's something that I like,
1: I want to talk just briefly about Eve and Adam's rib. Why did God choose to do that? He could have done anything he wanted to do. He could have made her from the slime. Can you just talk about why he might have chosen to create Eve from the rib of Adam, please?
0: I think going back to this idea of everything God does having a reason and a purpose, it gives us a sense of dependency upon each other. So even if you don't end up getting married, because obviously some people become nuns and and monks, and they're still part of the story as well. This idea of dependency, that one was created from another. So in one sense, one isn't complete without the other. And, And God himself said it is not good for man to be alone. So I don't think he's only speaking about that in relation to our fellow humans. I think also it's to speak to the restlessness in our own heart regarding him. So he says, it's not good for man to be alone. We have this companion. It's a larger narrative of we're supposed to have friends. We're supposed to seek God. We're supposed to seek society. And that this is only going to come about through the union of man and woman. You can't have hermits in the desert unless someone had them in the first place. So I think it's part of that mystery. And it's, in a certain sense, it's essential that we were created in tandem in, in the way that it is described.
1: We're one flesh. Yes. One thing I've been meditating on recently is the fact that Jesus Christ took his flesh from a human being, Mary. And I think it makes sense that they share the same genetic code. Have you ever heard anything about that to indicate that?
0: Well, I mean, other, than, other than we know the science behind how a child takes DNA from parents.
1: Yes. So that makes sense to you?
0: Yes, and also this dovetails with our lady's immaculate conception. So why, why bother to have an immaculate conception if you're not going to take your, your human matter from this woman? And if you do take this human matter from this woman, you necessarily take the DNA that, that comes with. So we know that now because of the of the studies into to DNA that you're going to take this code from your mother and... Our Lord took it from an immaculate vessel.
1: So I like to meditate on the fact that Jesus and Mary are one flesh. So in a very real way, it was Mary's flesh that was crucified on the cross. Is that taking it too far or is that Orthodox Catholic teaching?
0: It's interesting. I haven't thought about it in this way. It was Mary's blood and fluids, etc. that had nourished our Lord that created that flesh. So we know that that flesh could not have been made without her physical contribution. And knowing about the seven sorrows of Our Lady and knowing that his passion causes a sword to pierce her heart makes me favor that idea of your meditation of of her being, in a sense, crucified with him. Uh, as to whether that's actually her flesh, we could say that you know, her DNA contributed to that flesh, certainly, but it's obviously our Lord's flesh and his redemption for us, but she contributed to that flesh.
1: Sometimes people talk about twins having a sort of um, action at a distance. One of them is in danger, the other one feels it, one of them is in pain, the other one feels it. Maybe it could go a little bit further, but at least that much I think we could grant, no?
0: I would say, yeah, I would say our Lord and our Lady were at least connected this way, it would seem to me. And my father was a fraternal twin because he's passed away. But he, he, I, the things that I would observe between him and my aunt, and then this is just a, a twin. This is a hum, you know, human level. Between Our Lord and Our Lady, I think it would be taken up even more. And I was thinking about this recently. Again, we're recording this not too long after Easter. And Our Lady is the first person Our Lord goes to see. And, of course, Our Lady was with him all throughout the Passion. And so that connection, physical, spiritual, mental, I don't know that there was a closer connection of any humans in in history.
1: Can you talk about the different dangers of rejecting Mary for the Protestants?
0: I think that the, the challenge is that if we look, going back to this idea that nothing's accidental for God, that he plans out everything, that we don't we don't have any reason to think that our Lord would have missed, taken a misstep here with Our Lady and, and just had her be somebody random. I think that's the the challenge, that if we if we know that there's nothing random with God, so if I can get a Protestant to conceive it, God has a reason for everything, all right? If God has a reason for everything, why would he just make pick someone random off the street? If you, yourself, and again, this... I think of our Lord saying, if you being evil, know to give good things to your children, dot, dot, dot. So if if God being God can pick his own mother, is he not going to pick the, the best mother possible? If we as humans being evil would pick a great mother, if we were in the position to choose our own mother, why would God just pick anybody? It doesn't make sense. If we would pick someone special, God would certainly pick someone special. And not just someone special, but the most special person ever. The other problem is, if she's not immaculately conceived, then you have our Lord being born into original sin, which makes it theologically impossible for him to redeem us. So, so Protestants, I think, sometimes in, in hating Our Lady so much, don't realize the theological trouble it gets them into by not saying she's immaculately conceived. And strangely, Muslims, because of their you know weird made-up religion, they think that Mary is immaculately conceived. Really? Yes, well, because, as you know, Mohammed just cooked up his religion at, from a mixture of the Judaism and Christianity that was in North Africa at the time. So he liked Mary being immaculately conceived. And so that's in there.
1: Uh-huh. This brings to mind a question about grace, God's grace. St. Paul famously said, you know, remove this thorn from my side. He prayed three times and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul didn't get everything he wanted, but he got sufficient grace. And on the other hand, if I look at my conversion and St. Paul's conversion, I feel jealous. Paul got more grace or he corresponded more with grace his conversion was more dramatic than my own so there seems to be a wide variety and if we look at the blessed virgin mary the graces that she was given uh, she's full of grace maximally so how do you account for this diversity i think saint paul said something about god being free to make vessels for honor vessels for dishonor but can you just talk about that variety and how uh, how to explain that to a non-believer, because a non-believer asked me about that recently, and I just said it's a great mystery, but uh, you might have something more to contribute.
0: Well, from from the Christian side, I would refer you to to the litany of humility. So we, we ask that if someone, people will be holier than us, provided that we become as holy as we ought. As a Christian, we accept that people are going to have different levels of grace. But on the human level, if I'm speaking with, again with a non-believer, The idea is that we all have different gifts. Some people are more gifted in one area than another. Some people are gifted in all the areas. You know, we meet these people, and and it seems that they're physically gifted, mentally gifted, emotionally gifted. Why God has given them these gifts. Now, the Christian reflection is that sometimes not only are people given gifts, but they're given blessings insofar as God is not able to bless them in the next life. So if we see some, you know, some of these celebrities or some of these fabulously wealthy people, God is in his great kindness, even though these people are sinning, are evil, and have no intention of, of living with him, he's giving them blessings now because there's no blessings to be had on the other side, and they're enjoying their, their time now. So if we think about the diversity that, that spread, it's not only... God choosing different levels, but it's also an expression of his different levels of grace. So for some people living a hidden, quiet, monastic life versus, let's say, St. Philip Mary or St. Francis of Assisi out and uh, evangelizing St. Paul, these are expressions of these different gifts. And we're just in the period after Pentecost. So you think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how those are expressed in us and how we seek to cultivate them and, and their expression within us. So I think a secular can understand, just on a natural level, that, that gifts are distributed unevenly. Uh, for us as Christians, the added level is that that makes us more accountable, more responsible, maybe more mindful of, of what we're given and what we need to attain.
1: I know that there are abundant graces that God has given me. They're like presents that I've not yet unwrapped. So one of my favorite prayers is to pray for the grace to accept the graces I've already received and to unpack them and to cooperate with them. Can you just talk about the psychology of that?
0: So for, for our listeners, I think I would start by the difference between sanctifying grace and actual grace. So sanctifying grace is the life of grace within us, provided that we are in the state of grace that we haven't committed mortal sin and killed the life of grace within us. And then actual grace. Actual grace is that momentary grace which are available even to people who are not in the state of sanctifying grace. So non-believers can be given actual graces all the time. And these are the graces that move you towards other things. So when you're talking about unpacking the graces that are already given to you, I think that you're speaking about that life of grace, the sanctifying grace within you. So provided that you're in the state of grace, that there's, so much richness there that we can't comprehend it. It's the life of God within us. So there's an endless deposit that we can sort through. The actual graces can assist us in appreciating that. So if we're in a moment of prayer and we get uh, a specific movement to ask us, you should read this or you should pray for this person, these are directives to help us dive deeper into you could I, you're calling it the unpacked graces but I would say the, the sanctifying grace within yourself and yes that, that makes sense those, those work together And when you're talking to somebody who you're, you're interested in converting you, you can ask them have you ever had moments where you were moved to pray or you were interested in reading the Bible and they'd say yes say so that was a moment of actual grace that we can specifically say that was God moving you in that direction. Now, what you did with it afterwards, maybe you refused to do it, you didn't do it, that's on you. But if you have a movement towards something that is specifically spiritual, you should pick up this part of Scripture, you should talk to a priest, you should think on your sins, etc. We we know that those movements are from God.
1: Mm. But those of us who make it to heaven by the grace of God, we will reflect on our earthly time and we will, uh, of course, we'll not be able to regret anything, but if we could regret anything, it would be that we did not take advantage of the graces that we had available to us. Is, Is that not correct theologically, what I'm saying?
0: Well, in heaven, we're in a state of perfection. So we are in the vessel that we have created and that vessel is full. So if we've created a thimble size container, that thimble size container will be full. If we've created a gallon size container, that gallon size container will be full. So it's not possible for us to regret, insofar as we will be fully happy. On this side of the veil, yes. And, and that's why we <laughs> I encourage people make your container as large as possible. Because you obviously want want that but it's it's like another way if we think about how Dante talks about this in the Divine Comedy that we have dimmer stars and brighter stars but stars are still stars and so we can't regret on the other side we can only I suppose pre-regret here and I think that's good enough I think it's good enough for us to not want to regret and therefore work hard on on this side to make sure that you don't. But you, 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 in a sense, you cannot regret on that side.
1: I was pretty devastated when I met an ex-Catholic woman, and she said she lost her faith because her prayers were not being answered the way she wanted them to be answered. So she said, what's the point in praying? So she stopped praying, and in one month without prayer, she became an atheist. So this, to me, emphasizes what St. Alphonsus Liguri says about prayer. If you want to be saved, Pray. If you don't pray, you cannot be saved. Can you just talk about this, this very, very clear and direct lifeline that we have to our own eternal salvation? Not that we can do it without grace, but if we make a decision to stop praying, we're in deep danger. Can you just talk a little bit about that?
0: But I would say, I would, I would question that premise, is did she really have faith? If, if God is simply a divine candy maker, a deliverer of delights to you, then who do you believe in? You know, what? what is this entity that you believe in? So if that was the entity she believed in, well, she didn't believe in God in the first place.
1: Well, she didn't want candy. She wanted her sick child to survive or whatever it was, something tragic. And, and uh, you know, it was a big deal. It wasn't just a, a small thing she was asking for frivolously, you know?
0: Right, but again, the idea of faith is not for God to do as you command him. So I told you that this is what I wanted, and you gave me something else. Our job as Christians is not to question. In fact, if we look at all the spiritual writers, the spiritual writers always say that the superior position is always to dispose yourself completely to God's will, to not seek your will at own. It it is a lower class of spirituality, not that there's something flawed in that, it makes you sinful, it doesn't, but it's a lower class of spirituality to demand your will. In a certain situation, like, God, I want my father to live in this sense. It's much preferred to say, God, I want your will to be fulfilled in this, in this particular case. That's what I want. I always want my life to be conformed with what you want for me. And so if we talk about faith and specific circumstances like this, the tragedy, the death of a sick child, that is a horrible thing, I can imagine, especially for a mother, but it's a much greater tragedy to impose your will on God and to say, this is how it's going to be. And if you're not going to be this, I'm going to take my marbles and go home and I'm done with God. It it was a severe test, but that test broke whatever faith that she had. And God tests those whom he loves. He doesn't test idly. He tests so that we can express our virtue, so that we can express our faith. That's what we saw with, with Job. He doesn't permit us to be tempted without giving us a triumph if we stand up for him. And so, in this sense, that prayer is not simply this this great conversation that we have with God, but it's an ongoing submission to His will and an asking for it because we, as stubborn humans, don't want to. We we always want our way. We want, and you'll especially. I'm visiting the United States uh, at the at, at this time. And I remember here in this country, they're always big on substitution. So can can you bring this with peas instead of carrots? Whereas I live in France normally, and you'd be thrown out of the restaurant if you asked anything like that. So we're very much into things our specific way, not just in the United States, but, but everywhere and, and with our own will. And it's important to keep in mind in prayer to always be asking for the grace to conform our minds and our hearts to what God is asking for us and to accept Our disappointments, because there will be many disappointments. I mean, in in a certain sense, I would reframe for this lady and say, all right, you're disappointed with what God said or did in this specific situation. How many times have you disappointed God? So I think if we don't make it about ourselves, and if we remember that prayer is always this ongoing conversation, I think sometimes I struggle with this a bit because when I was younger, I would see... Prayer is more petition. I'm going to tell God what I want. I got to a certain point in my life where I was doing the things that I wanted and providing for myself, and and I thought, well, I don't really want to ask God for this. Like I can do it myself, uh, which is of course a silly way of thinking. But to put it to Him and and say, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I would like, even though He knows, even though He's God. It's the same thing. That Protestants say, well, I can just confess my sins to God directly. Okay. But it's a lot harder to say it out loud, isn't it, and to another man. And there's a psychological purpose for confession, what it does for us psychologically, how it helps us to move forward. Same thing with prayer. There's a psychological purpose for prayer. and It helps us articulate the things that are on our mind, on our heart, and to put them back to God. He, he knows it, yes, but it's important that you say it. It's important that you have this conversation with him because he desires this conversation with you and we fulfill his will by having these conversations back to the quote that you said he who prays is saved he who does not is damned that's just the reality of it
1: i I want to go back to something you said about the uh, shroud of turin and uh, the miraculous in general i was just reading about the house of loreto i hadn't really heard much about that before Uh, it really struck me as an interesting miracle for many reasons another one of my favorites is our lady of guadalupe with that tilma what prevents non-believers from acknowledging these facts which really should move someone to submit to god almighty
0: well i could go on all day about the tilma of our lady of guadalupe I, i suppose that would be a great place to start with someone because i would start from the very basics that cloth is not built to last 500 years so we think about any clothing we go to a museum And we think about, well, what are the things that we can find clothing-wise that are still with us five, six, seven hundred years later? And the tilma was made from this peasant-type coarse cloth. It should not have survived. If we examine the eyes of Our Lady, we see the people looking at the tilma. (laughs) Um, If you move a stethoscope over her heart, you can hear a heartbeat. The tilma itself stays at a constant temperature, Remarkably, exactly the same as our body temperature, the constellation in her clothing, her vestments, those are the arrangement of the stars on that day in Mexico on that date. So that's what the stars would have looked like. And I could could go on and on. But you you look at all that. And so if I place that evidence, which I have on occasion, I say, okay, I know about this thing. They're going to say, all right, Stephen, that's fine. You're telling me all this. But I'd have to see it. So they're, they're going a little St. Thomas on me. That's fine. I, I, I'll, but then I'll say, okay, if I bring you to Mexico City and we see this thing, will you believe? And they'll say no. Because, again, this goes back to what I said. Faith is a gift. You can present someone with a miracle in the face, and they can still refuse. Or having seen the miracle, a few days later, they'll say, yeah, you know what, that was just a dream we think about the seeds thrown onto rocky ground, right? So they, they spring up with enthusiasm, but a few days later they're choked off. There were tens of thousands of people who were converted to Fatima when the, the, the miracle of the sun occurred. And did all of those people go on to become saints? I can hope that some of them did, but some of them, a few days later, they're like, yeah, that sun miracle thing, that was that was just a dream. And they went back, unfortunately, to their way. So you can confront people with miracles, not just documented miracles, but miracles in their own lives, and they themselves will then choose to do otherwise. So I would say Our Lady of Guadalupe is a very uh, favorite. Uh, All the stories of Padre Pio. There's Padre Pio flying, (laughs) Padre Pio bilocating. There's, in the United States, I think it's in New Mexico, there's a famous special staircase that was made for some nuns by, from all accounts, St. Joseph. Uh, which, which makes sense, obviously, being a carpenter. He built this, this staircase, which, which is still there. You can go and see the staircase yourself. It, at, the, at the very least, naturally speaking, the staircase seems to be uh, wondrous. How, how could someone have made this? There's no nails. So you can start a natural conversation with someone and say, well, how did you do this architecturally? And then maybe take it on to a, a discussion of the faith. But I think this is the challenge with miracles. When I was younger... I remember being in a Novus Ordo school and finding out about some of these Eucharistic miracles where the host turned to to flesh. And I would, you know, talk to my my non-believing friends about it. And they would, again, they would just dismiss it. But I thought I had this trump card that I was carrying with me. I said, check out this miracle. What are you going to say now? Uh, But people are always free to disregard miracles. They really are. Because think about (laughs) all the miracles performed by our Lord. And what happens? The Pharisees get upset. <laughs> they don't dispute the miracles. Raises a man from the dead. Pharisees grit their teeth. Right? It, it, it just passes over their head that he just raised someone from the dead. They're just upset. And so our own will can really get in the way of the supernatural. So something wonderful can be happening in front of you. Something, uh, in a sense, a certain miracle in your own life can happen. But if you aren't tuned in if you aren't paying attention, if you aren't open to grace, you can miss it.
1: Yeah, uh, there's so much more I want to talk about uh, with you. But um, maybe to wrap up the show, you can talk about what you're excited about, why you're in the United States, what your projects are that are coming up. Just talk generally about uh, what you're looking forward to in the sort of short term or near future.
0: Sure. Before that, I just would wrap up our discussion about Young Earth creationism and and, and evolution by by saying that I think that people who accept the so-called scientific narrative, they are in a much stronger position of faith than you or I, insofar as they believe something on no evidence. I have evidence for, for my belief, I have scripture, I have the things that have happened in my own life, I have my own thought process that, that confirms it. They have to believe a bunch of guesses from people that say, these ro- okay, first of all, the universe created itself, then a bunch of rocks hit each other, created the earth, and then lightning struck the water, and some amoeba crawled out, it evolved itself, and then some number of years later, Hamlet was written by Shakespeare. So that's what they believe, which to me is the biggest leap of faith in history. I, I can't imagine someone who has more faith than an atheist, right? They have to believe this ridiculous narrative. So who has more faith, me or this, this person who believes this crazy story? So I think that's where I would normally start this conversation to say, all right, you think that I believe this, crazy, you know, this fable from the Bible, but tell me about what you believe because it sounds pretty fantastic to me. So I think that's, that's usually where I'll start conversations and hopefully with a friendly and open spirit. I think that's the thing. Just make sure you don't get emotional and don't get wrapped up and, and really just keep your voice level and, and ha- enjoy an exchange with, with someone. Have you seen any uh, good fruits from that? I think I just, nor- I'll normally get resistance insofar as like, they'll say, all right, even I can see that your explanation's only slightly better than mine. So if they're willing to concede that it is possible for there to be a creator, they'll still say, Stephen, you don't have any evidence that there's a creator. You only have indirect evidence. So this goes back to a recurring theme of our conversation today. It's the gift of faith. You can't give that to someone. You can't impose that on someone. They have to accept it freely. But it's there for anybody who wants it. They have to ask for it, though. If they weren't born with it, if they weren't given it at a young age, you have to ask for it.
1: Yeah, I wonder if the family that Maximilian Colby gave his life for. I wonder if they were touched and converted, if they received the gift of faith more readily at that point.
0: Maximilian Kolbe my, was my uh, confirmation saint. And I don't know the fate of that family. Uh, it'd be interesting to follow up with that.
1: Mm. But it's possible that that act of love could have softened their
0: hearts, yeah? Yes, well, uh, we have a saint uh, who who uh, was attacked by somebody, and he ended in his turn ended up becoming a saint as well.
1: Maria Goretti's killer.
0: Yes. So, what am I doing in the United States? So, I'm here visiting my family. I have thirteen nieces and nephews here, and they they're growing up very quickly. So, if I don't come and see them, they'll be all grown up before I know it. So, I, I'm here to see family. I'm here to work on some business, including recording some, some podcasts for Restoration Radio and also to engage in some other business projects. I'm recording some some courses, some video courses and doing some collaboration on, on another startup that will be coming out next year. And in between that, exploring the great natural beauty of the United States, I always say that it's pretty hard to find a country that's got a better collection of national parks than the United States. The diversity, everything from Joshua Tree and Grand Canyon to Mount Olympia to Yellowstone, Yosemite, it's, a, it's an all-star cast of national parks. And so I'm in between business and family. I'm going to be seeing some of these national parks. I'm pretty excited about that.
1: Yeah, and uh, I guess the Grand Canyon is a good uh, talking point for evolution versus creation. Lots to say there. And I think the, the science is on our side there. A lot of new science about sedimentology and all that sort of thing.
0: There's, there's there's no opposition between science and faith. The question is, is your science good? Or is it a bunch of guesses driven by an agenda?
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. I've got to run off to work now. But Okay,
0: well, I, I enjoy having these conversations and we'll, we'll talk more soon.
1: For sure. Thanks for taking the time, huh? Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you got to do is ask. All you got to do is ask.